Good afternoon. Welcome to Business Buzz. I'm Harold Littlejohn, CPA. I'll be your host for the next hour of entertainment, hopefully information, hopefully getting you thinking maybe a little differently than you used to. I like to talk a lot about uh, business and money and savings and just things that you may at least once in a while need to hear a second opinion about because you won't always hear it from the usual sources. And that's sort of what I, sort of my reason for being on uh, Business Buzz is just something I'd like, I've always liked to bring people a different side of something, a little different opinion on something. Um, sometimes just get people thinking a little better. This whole past year has been so weird. Uh, sometimes you just need to have a different way of looking at things. So hopefully on Business Buzz, I'm able to do that. I, I try. So a lovely Chico summer afternoon. Not too super hot, but then again, it will be hot again soon. And we don't get that much of a break from the triple digit. So when we do get a short break from it, it's kind of nice. I appreciate that fact about today's weather. I like to talk on Business Buzz about local events and then sort of spread out to the larger areas and the national ideas and the worldwide stuff and whenever I can. And I have three or four main themes on Business Buzz. If you've been listening, you kind of know what they are. They're probably going to be touched on today a decent amount. But there is one category of business that's interesting to say the least. And I did find an article in the Chico ER, which is the one news service that I do subscribe to because being a Chico radio host, I need to make sure I'm up on the latest Chico news so I get my feeds every day. It's nice to get those and then it's nice to be able to dig dig in and read more when I want to. Can't read them all, of course, but this article is actually just uh, very recent, the last day or so. And it says, confusion for business owners hoping to join Chico's commercial cannabis future. Well, I happen to know one person who's in the application process, and I don't know where that process is right at the moment, but from what I understand, there are four dispensaries allotted to Chico. People who want to have one of these four dispensaries have to, they basically have to apply for it. So it's, I think it's quite a process to get approved. The other thing is the location of it is very tricky because it can't be a certain amount of distance from a school or a daycare or I'm sure there's all kinds of various rules. I don't know the details on that. I do know someone who is in the process of trying to get one of these cannabis dispensary permits, whatever they call them. And I know the big problem he had at the start was finding a location in Chico, number one, that's available for rent or, or to purchase, that qualifies away from all these places. It's kind of like if you want to do, I would imagine if you wanted to open up, open a firearms or a gun shop, you'd have all these rules about how far you'd have to be away from a school and a, a church and a whatever else they have all these restrictions on. So what I find interesting about the cannabis business is I personally, as a CPA, don't take on cannabis clients per se. This one that I do already know who may become a cannabis dispensary owner or manager, I'll help him if he wants me to. Here's the biggest catch with the cannabis business. 
it's still technically illegal on the federal side. The IRS has a blanket rule, I believe it's called 280E, and I was looking at that here. And here's their blanket rule. There's only certain expenses that a cannabis selling business can deduct. They can't deduct a ton of other expenses that every other business always deducts. I don't want to get too complicated, but there was some court case about an illegal drug dealer in the past, and the court tax court case did allow what's called cost of goods sold to be deducted. So in other words, let's just use the example of, I'll use the example of an airplane dealer, like a Learjet dealer. Their tax return may look something like this. They, let's just say this dealer sold one Learjet last year. So he would have, let's call it gross income of the selling price of the Learjet, and let's say $15 million. Then he gets a category called cost of goods sold, which means what did he pay for the item that he sold? Not the overhead, not the rent, not the advertising, not the office clerical wages, but what did he pay for that inventory that he sold? So in this case, we'll say he paid $8 million and he sold it for $15 million. That business as a Learjet sales business would have the top line would say revenue 15 million. The next line would say cost of goods sold 8 million. And the next line would be the answer of 15 minus eight. It would say gross profit of 7 million. Here's where everything differentiates for a cannabis business versus a regular business, which I'm saying the Learjet is a regular business. So now the Learjet guy has $7 million of gross profit, and now he gets to deduct his advertising, his wages of salespeople's wages, his rent on his office building. All of the things that are called ordinary and necessary business expenses that are well understood to be deductible go underneath that gross profit line of $7 million in this case. And so let's say he's got $6 million of rent and wages and insurance and all of the things that businesses normally deduct as ordinary and necessary business expense. His bottom line that he's going to pay tax on is the $7 million of gross profit minus $6 million of expenses, so he's going to pay tax on a $1 million of net profit. The difference is if you're a cannabis business, you don't get to deduct anything further down than the cost of goods sold. So let's say you have a cannabis business that grosses $15 million. And let's say the, they allow the cost of goods sold of what the cannabis that went out your door as sales, how much did you pay for that in order to have it in your store, in your inventory? So let's say, just for the discussion today, let's say that was $8 million kind of like the Learjet's cost of goods sold. Now, the cannabis business, for federal purposes, has the same gross profit as the Learjet salesman of $7 million. Here's the problem. He's not allowed, the cannabis business is not allowed to deduct all of those other ordinary and necessary business expenses. So let's put it this way. Let's just say... He has to report a net income of $7 million, and the corporate tax rate right now is 21%. I'll call it 20 to make the math a little simpler. So let's say in this case, this guy has to pay 20% tax on $7 million of gross profit. Well, that's $1.4 million. Well, let's say that he did have $6 million in other expenses with all of his rent and wages and insurance and all that. Well, guess what? He truly netted $1 million under the normal business rules, but since he wasn't allowed to deduct all of those business expenses that all other businesses get to deduct, 
he's going to be liable for $1.4 million of tax when he only netted a million dollars. If you see where this goes, it, it just doesn't, it doesn't make sense. It's going to, what, in my opinion, just the simple fact of this limitation on deductions is going to make cannabis businesses have to sell their, their inventory for a lot, lot more than they would have to if they were allowed to deduct expenses. So I, I'm just putting this out there because this is a fast-growing segment of the business world. And it's not being treated fair. Well, I won't say it's not being treated fairly. It's just a matter of opinion whether you think uh, marijuana should be illegal. Um, I mean, if my own personal opinion, I wish it was because I'm, I'm just not big on it. But I feel bad for these cannabis businesses that have this crazy tax rule to deal with. It doesn't make sense. It just doesn't compute that you have a federal illegal business alongside this at the same time, the same business is legal in the state. And I know California is, they're not quite as legal here as they are in some of the other states. I know Colorado is, was early and pretty big on this liberalizing the cannabis law. So whether or not you believe uh, cannabis should be legal or not, I feel that if it's going to be legal, it shouldn't be triple, quadruple, or 10 times taxed, which is how it's going to end up being, because the federal isn't going to allow those proper deductions. So the commercial cannabis ordinance, I'm just looking at that ER article now. There are jobs waiting, there is sales tax waiting. So people are saying, hey, there's a lot of tax and jobs to be done uh, with this deal here. And it says here, can, uh, this person is confused and frustrated at the commercial cannabis business application timeline process being halted and restarted. After being halted shortly after the 2020 election, six months later, two council meetings restarted the application process. However, the city is only allowing three dispensaries to open and business owners are worried about opportunity and further costs of distribution and manufacturing continue to be blocked. Wow, it's only three. That, my, my mistake, I had heard it was four, but that was back in, that was back in 2020 prior to the, this shutdown they had on this. I don't know what they did. So the bottom line is the people who are proponents of the legalized cannabis dispensaries are upset that it's being delayed and it's a good job producer and a good sales tax producer. And they're just saying, hey, we should do it. It says, when Chico said yes, we found a building we knew would meet all the zoning requirements far enough away from schools, daycares, everything. And we've been leasing that building for two and a half years now. Now she said the process towards dispensary is delayed more than six months. After the application process completing January 4th was cut short by the council in December 2020. Between interviews, the vetting process, and getting a property use permit, if a business like Kesey gets approved, it could be another year before the dispensary opens. Hmm. Interesting. Well, if you want to learn more, uh, all I can say is be ready to charge a lot of money for your product if they're not going to allow you to deduct all of your business expenses. That's my main lesson for cannabis-type business people. The only people I've known that are in, in the cannabis business technically I've had a few clients who actually are gardeners who do trimming of marijuana plants, and they get paid a very good hourly rate for knowing what they're doing. We're going to be coming up on that first break real soon. But now those people, they're just employees. I'll see you after the break. Stay tuned to Business Buzz. 
reason to believe. The evidence. Exhibit 4B. In 1879, a brilliant Oxford graduate, William Ramsey, set out to Asia Minor to disprove the historical accuracy of the New Testament. He had always been taught by his professors that the Bible was largely a hoax, and he never questioned it. So he assumed it would be an easy task, finding many historical and archaeological proofs that the Bible was inaccurate and fabricated. He focused on the ancient Roman culture where much of the book of Acts in the Bible supposedly took place. He poured over many ancient documents and records, locations, topography, officials' titles, administrative boundaries, customs, and even archaeological structures. He was going to leave no stone unturned to prove the New Testament was a hoax. But to his astonishment, he didn't find a single contradiction or inaccurate statement. In fact, he had to honestly conclude that the book of Acts was in perfect harmony with history. William Ramsey was so shaken by his discoveries that he later himself became a follower of Jesus. One more reason to believe. You're listening to Life Radio, KKXX, AM and FM. Here is the heart of confession. It admits sin and guilt. That's it. True biblical confession agrees with the facts of the Bible and freely admits the sin and the guilt. David Hawking breaks down the Bible's steps to salvation this week on Hope for Today. Tune in for Hope for Today weekdays at 8 a.m. here on KKXX. Welcome back to Business Buzz. I'm Harold Littlejohn, CPA, on a lovely Chico summer afternoon. I hope you're having a nice day. I'm happy that you're able to spend part of it listening to me. I try to be informative, educational, sometimes entertaining. I I do my best. Being a CPA is well, it's an interesting it's an interesting job. I won't complain because I'm very busy and there's just so many people that need help. I talked to another new person today who has some prior year's taxes to be done and it just uh, the business just keeps on coming. I'm not complaining. Of course, Chico's a growing area. I think the more the, the, more the urban areas uh, lose popularity... I think the more places like Chico are going to be in demand, and I think people will keep moving here. That's my guess. I I do have to get one thing off my chest. I try not to be too. I try not to be too political, but there's just a few things I can't stomach these days. So I'm just going to have to mention a few things. I'm going to encourage you to listen to some of the things that I listen to. And I think you'll learn a lot. You will be very happy to be more educated and at least hear the other side of the story on all the stories you're hearing where you don't hear the other side. I'll just give you a list of some of the people that I listen to on a regular basis. If you want to look them up, I recommend them. Some of them do daily newscasts. I listen to a lot of them. I like hearing the other side of the story. After all, I can I can turn on ABC News or CNN anytime I want to hear that side of the story, but I really don't need to hear that side because I've heard it since I was a kid watching TV in the on my on our first color TV when I was about nine years old, and I've had enough. But I'll just give you a few names to jot down and look these people up and start listening. X22report.com Jim Willie, W-I-L-L-I-E. He does interviews. He's got a website called golden-jackass.com, but you have to pay to get his newsletter. But on his golden-jackass.com, there's a section called uh, Free Public Area. And you go there and it gives a list of all the 
interviews he's got posted on various places that have interviewed him. So I've been listening to one of his interviews lately. And it's it's even older from April. He hasn't been doing as many interviews lately. But he's a great guy to listen to. He's got a lot of insight. Let's see what X twenty two, Jim Willie. Who else? Well, there's a guy named well, it's too it's too hard of a of a word to pronounce. So uh, there's lots of people you can listen to. Those are the those are two that I listen to quite often. And I've learned a lot and I wish I could share it all with you, but I can't I can't even remember all the stuff they've said. They it's like rapid fire information in one of these half hour interviews and there's just so many things that come out. One of the things that came out in the one I was listening to today with Jim Willie was that in and I have to look up the actual name of the bill, but in 2005, one of George Bush Jr. I call him Jr. One of George Bush Jr.'s quote accomplishments in office was a bank a bank reform act where basically, as a depositor, you are last in line if something happens to the bank. Think of it this way. If you assume like I do that these banks are all lying on their balance sheets as to what the real values are of what they own, then you may be dealing with a entity, your bank, which is actually insolvent or bankrupt. In other words, if it was accurately listed exactly what they really own versus what they really owe, they would be negative. They would not have a net worth. This law from 2005, and I'll have to look this up to get a little more detail next time. I just was listening to this today, and I didn't have time to look it up for the details, but I do remember reading this before. This law made it to where when you deposit your hard-earned money into your bank account, if something goes afoul with that bank, you are the last in line to get your money back. So you've got things like shareholders are first, um, no uh, bondholders are first, shareholders are second. I don't know what the order is. I don't do a lot of bank. I don't do a lot of bank work with uh, income tax of uh, bank clients. I don't have any. Never have. Never will. Uh, don't care. Those banks have a pecking order of who is entitled to the assets of that bank in order. It's kind of like a bankruptcy. If you've ever seen a list, if you've ever had a. Uh, party that you're involved with go bankrupt, you may have gotten something from the bankruptcy court and it lists which ones says, here's a list of the creditors are going to get something. And then below that's the list of all the creditors who aren't going to get nothing. And you're probably in that second path. Well, if a bank goes belly up, which they're probably, they're probably all insolvent as we speak. If a bank goes belly up, technically you're the last in line to get your money back. You just become a creditor, and they even have a law called a bail-in where if they needed to, they could take your money, and instead of giving you back your money, even as a note that they owe you, they could convert it to stock in that bank. So you would become a shareholder of a bad, ugly, bankrupt bank. That is the bottom line. So that's how safe your money actually is. Now, the fact that the government backstops all these banks, they, they print, I believe they're printing, and just based on everything I've read for the last year and a half, they're probably printing to the tune of $100 billion a day just to keep this, quote, system from imploding on itself. In other words, since 2008, our entire system has been kaput, but they've kept it alive by printing money. The problem is the debt that I've talked about on Business Buzz over and over. I used to mention 19 or 20 trillion. That was when I first started doing Business Buzz two or three years ago. Well, now that number is pushing 30 trillion, and like five or six trillion of that all happened in the last five months. What also is happening at the same time is 
in 08, all the bailout money went to the banks. So we didn't see it personally. This time, some of the bailout money is going to the general public with the stimulus and all that. So you're actually starting to see inflation rear its head, as they say, and it is happening. Lately, some of the month-over-month import-export prices, which is the only legitimate measure you can find because they lie about everything else. When you look at the CPI index, consumer price index, they just make up what they want and lie. But there is an import-export monthly analysis of prices that actually shows in the last month there's a 2% inflation in one month. Now, 2% is the general target of the Federal Reserve's annual inflation. Well, 2% a month translates to about 30% inflation when you compound it for 12 months, which means that we may be entering that phase called hyperinflation, where your dollars buy less and less. If you've noticed at the store, the packages are smaller and the prices are higher, that's inflation, and it seems to be taking a foothold and getting bad, uh, not to mention that a gallon of gas I was in I was in Lake Tahoe last weekend and it's five dollars a gallon well stay tuned to business buzz I got more good news on the money and money front I'll see you in a minute When we air a program, first the sound reaches the 35 major and minor parts of the human ear. Then the message travels out from the ear across millions of auditory nerves. From there it reaches about 10 billion neurons in your brain. Finally, the message and the teaching reaches your soul. Right here you'll find speakers and teachers that go way beyond just being educational or entertaining. Because you are more than just flesh and bone and nerves and neurons. We air programs that reach the soul. You are locked into Life Radio, KKXX, AM and FM. Hi, this is Pastor Chris Kinson at Community Church of God in Chico. Community Church of God has been a fixture in Chico for many years and now will be coming to you over the airwaves. Our program is called Your Message for Today, broadcast on Saturday and Sunday mornings at 10.30 a.m. We hope that you enjoy the Bible-based teaching and preaching that will be featured on these programs. We'd also like to extend to you an invitation to come and visit us at Community Church of God, 1095 East Avenue in Chico. Our services are at our 11 a.m. Sundays and Bible studies at 7 p.m. on Wednesdays. Come and worship with Community Church of God. Community Church of God, 1095 East Avenue, Chico, California. And our phone number, 530-345-4300. That's 530-345-4300. God bless you. God has abundantly blessed America. Our founding fathers knew and understood the laws of nature and of nature's God that prosper a people in harmony with them. Most assuredly, people that seek first God's ways of universal righteousness, spiritual prosperity, create the environment of peace, harmony, and blessing that naturally pave the way to material prosperity. America, bless God. Welcome back to Business Buzz. I'm Harold Littlejohn, CPA, spending part of my afternoon with you. I'm glad you have a chance to spend a little time with me. I hope I'm being entertaining and or informative. Well, speaking of civilizations going down the tubes, I brought an interesting article, and it's called The Decline of Roman Silver Coinage, Part 1. Okay. Anyway, what I wanted to point out was the sign of a declining society can be noted as a 
function of the amount of precious metals in their coinage. So I just wanted to review this real quick. Uh, Beginning in the late first century BC, just after the Republic had collapsed, Rome's first emperor, Augustus, issued gold, silver, and base metal coins with regularity. The Romans would continue this tradition for the next 500 years with varying degrees of success. For the first 90 years of the Roman Empire, when members of the Julio-Claudian family reigned, the purity of Rome's silver coinage was unassailable, a solid 98% pure or higher. That standard was maintained by the emperors Augustus, Tiberius, Caligula, and Claudius, and even Nero, who didn't change it for the first decade of his reign. However, the great fire in Rome in 64, and that, that's not 1964, that's just 64, marked the start of a debasement that would require about two centuries to unfold, eventually bringing Rome's silver coinage to an unfathomable low. The cost of rebuilding the raised areas of the capital was extraordinary. Nero chose the quickest and most efficient pathway to raising funds, recoining old money into new money of lesser intrinsic value, with Nero's treasury pocketing the difference. So if you see what they're doing there, uh, that's exactly what I've been talking about with our money supply problem here. It's being debased. It says that the Rome Mint, he decreased the purity of silver denarii by 5%, dropping it from about 98% to about 93%. Simultaneously, he reduced the weight of the denarius by about 12.5%, which further reduced the actual silver weight of the coin. That's kind of like shrinkflation when you notice that the bag of Ziplocs goes from 40 to 38, but the price stays the same. Well, you just got a 5% price rise and you don't even notice it. Says Nero also reduced the weight of his gold Ari and was even more aggressive in his intrinsic reduction of two major provincial coinages, the silver tetradrachms of Antioch and the billon tetradrachms of Alexandria. Nero was overthrown in 68, giving rise to a terrifying civil war that raged into 69, the infamous Year of Four Emperors. In the aftermath of the war, a new emperor, Vespasian, came to power. That was in 69 to 79. Not surprisingly, there was a catastrophic need for funds, so he reduced the purity of the denarius further still, from Nero's post-reform 93% to about 89%. The denarius remained at about 89% pure, though it dipped as low as 80% until the year 82, when Vespasian's second son, Domitian, 81 to 96 was emperor. He took the bold measure of restoring the purity of the denarius to the lofty Augustan standard of about 98%. Well, so in that that guy's case, it actually went back the other way. This was a fortunate circumstance, but did not last long. Just three years later, in 85, Domitian dropped the purity of the denarius down to Nero's post-reform standard of about 93 were at more or less, 93%, where it more or less remained for more than 20 years. Then in 107, that's a year, the emperor Trajan, 98 to 117, reduced the purity of the denarius, denarius by a further 3 or 4%, bringing it down to 89 to 90% silver. From there, the purity slid gently until 148, that's a year, when the emperor Anton, Antoninus Pius, 138 to 161, removed about another 5%, bringing the denarius to about 84 or 83% pure. So do you sort of see a pattern here? I'll continue. From there, the denarius continued its gentle slide, reaching a low ebb of about 71% silver near the end of the troubled reign of Commodus, 177 to 192. After that emperor's murder on New Year's Eve of 192, boy, uh, Nothing changes, does it? The denarius made a slight recovery under Pertinax and Didius Julianus, two emperors who ruled very briefly in 193 during the civil war that followed. 
Before that chaotic year had ended, control in Rome was taken by the frontier general Septimius Severus, 193 to 211. Those are the years. Under his otherwise successful watch, the purity of the denarius dropped to about 57%. You, you see a pattern there? Equally damaging to the long-term health of Rome's silver coinage was the introduction in late 214 or in 215 of the double denarius by Severus's eldest son, the Emperor Caracalla, 198 to 217. Though apparently tariffed at twice the value of a denarius, the double denarius only weighed about one and a half times more than a denarius. This made it an inflationary instrument by nature, for it had less than 70% of the silver contained in two denarius coins that theoretically had the same circulation value. So you see the way they trick you? It's kind of like the shrinkflation in the grocery store. You're being tricked. Okay, the double denarius and denarius were struck concurrently. Um, the double denarius was struck regularly till it ended up supplanting the denarius late in the reign of Gordian III. From that point onward, silver denarii were rarely produced. Okay. Anyway, I'm going to try to get my point here. My point here is we're going to talk about the United States in a little bit, if you were wondering. If you were wondering where this was going. To complicate matters in the study of debasement, there often were differences in purity from one mint to another. For example, in the period 242 to 244, Gordian III's mint in Rome was striking double denarii that were about 37% pure, whereas at his mint in Antioch was striking them at an average silver fineness of 43.5%. Over the next four decades, the purity of imperial silver coinage continued to slide, dropping steadily until it had reached about 41% purity in 250. That's the year. Soon afterward, under Trebonianus Gallus, it sank to about 35% pure. The slide picked up momentum as Rome's economic and military fortunes faded dramatically under the co-emperors Valerian, 253 to 260, and his son Gallienus, 253 to 268. By the tragic year of 260, when Valerian I was captured by the Persians, the purity of the double denarius had fallen to as low as 15%. However, the worst was yet to come. As crises erupted on all fronts, Gallienus struggled to keep his empire intact. By the time he was murdered in a coup in 268, huh, another murder? Hmm. By the time he was murdered in a coup in 268, the double denarius had slid to a silver content of 5% or less in some cases dropping to about 2.5%. That's one part out of 40, just so you know. As we've seen, the saga of Roman imperial silver was one of a steadily inexorable decline. So what I'm, my, what I'm trying to say there is that the decline of the empire coincided with the decline of the silver in the coins. if that makes sense. So what happened to the United States in 1965? So after the next break, which is coming up soon, I'm going to look at an article called Kennedy was our last hard money president. And... says, President Kennedy was the last U.S. president who defended the traditional role of silver in U.S. coinage. His successor, Lyndon B. Johnson, sowed the seeds of future inflation with his guns-and-butter spending policies, paying for rising war and welfare costs at the same time. Barely 20 months after Kennedy was killed in November 63, oh, there's another one of those uh, leaders being murdered, just like in Rome, Silver demand rose so fast that Johnson opted to take silver out of most U.S. coins. On June 23, 1965, while signing the Coinage Act of 1965, Johnson proudly stated that he made the first fundamental change in our coinage in 173 years. The Coinage Act of 1965 supersedes the Act of 1792. 
Since that time, our coinage of dimes, quarters, half dollars, and dollars have contained 90% silver. Today, except for the silver dollar, we are establishing a new coinage. The new dimes and quarters will contain no silver. They will be composites with faces of the same alloy used in our five-cent piece that is bonded to a core of pure copper. It's funny how they talk and mention like this. Uh, the same alloy used in our five-cent piece. Well, why doesn't he just say nickel? In fact, the alloy, it's not even all nickel. It's part copper, part nickel, probably part tin. I'm not sure. But it bonded to a core of pure copper, acting like that's some kind of precious metal. I mean, you can still buy a pound of copper for like two bucks. It said, despite saying that silver consumption is now more than double new silver production each year, he defied all laws of economic supply and demand by adding, our present silver coins won't disappear and they won't even become rarities. If anybody has any idea of hoarding our silver coins, let me say this. Treasury has a lot of silver on hand, and it can be, and it will be used to keep the price of silver in line with its value in our present silver coin. There will be no profit in holding them out of circulation for the value of their silver content. Now the author goes on to say, and I'll finish this one when we get back from the break. Stay tuned to Business Buzz. I'll be right back. Famine in the Land. This is Ken Ham, editor of the Exposé Glasshouse, Shattering the Myth of Evolution. Yesterday we learned that most of today's young people believe morality changes over time. This moral relativism results in everyone doing what's right in their own eyes. And this thinking isn't just in the culture, it's in the church too. This is a consequence of a famine in the land, a famine of the hearing of the words of the Lord. But how has this happened? While many churches have watered down the teaching of the Word, instead they focus on experiences or entertaining people. And this directs focus away from God's Word and doesn't give people an authoritative foundation to stand on. Instead, it's just about having another and better experience. Plan your trip to the Ark Encounter and the Creation Museum when you visit our website at AnswersRadio.com. You'll be equipped and encouraged at AnswersRadio.com. By constantly keeping their radio dial locked in right here. Our listeners experience a difference in their day. You wake up with God on your mind, and um, all through the day, as much as I can get a chance, I'm listening to the radio. The atmosphere that you create determines the product that you'll produce. And so through the course of your day, you start your day with the presence of God so that your day will be productive and you know you can do the will of God and have a clear mind in doing it. Life Radio, KKXX, AM and FM. Welcome back to Business Buzz. I'm Harold Littlejohn, CPA. Enjoying a nice Chico summer afternoon. I hope you are too. So I wanted to pick up where we left off after that uh, last uh, break. So Johnson says, There will be no profit in holding them out of circulation for the value of their silver content. And the author says, Johnson was very, very wrong. Today the price of pre-65 circulating silver coins, those are the good ones, is about 18 times their face value. A 1964 dime trades for about $1.80, while most other dimes are worth just 10 cents. So, and I did a little math. Um, what's interesting is no matter what, no matter what the price of gas does, that old silver quarter just keeps on trucking. It keeps on buying a gallon of gas. Today, even with the artificially low silver price that's phony, the paper price, a quarter made in 1964 or earlier 
It has $4.66 worth of silver in it. And right now, a gallon of gas is ranging between 4 and $5. I was saying earlier, I was in Tahoe, and the gas is starting at $5. Here, it's still starting around $4. But it's amazing how that quarter keeps buying a gallon of gas even 60 years, almost 60 years after the quarter ended and was taken away from us. Of course, the smart people saved them. The other interesting thing is they, they if you look up the, the quote price of silver right now, today it'll say $25.80. But if you go to buy, say you go to buy a 10-ounce silver bar, you will not be able to buy it for less than about around $31. That's called the premium. So whatever they say the price is, it's a fake price because the real price of buying real silver is at least 20% higher to buy the cheap bullion stuff. The interesting thing is the American Silver Eagle, which is everybody's favorite silver coin, it's the one made by the U.S. Mint, It sells, the cheapest you can get one of those is $36 for one ounce, which is a 40% premium over what they say is the silver price. And the other interesting development lately, I have to look this up. Uh, Just recently, the U.S. Mint came out and said they're not uh, not gonna sell any more of those eagles that everybody wants. Let me see if I can find that article. I'm looking. Anyway, the U.S. Mint stopped selling eagles. Let me see. Anyway, they they stopped uh, they stopped selling them because they don't have enough silver and gold to produce them anymore. And when the mint was authorized to make those silver eagles, the law said they had to. So no matter what the prevailing price of buying the blank silvers they needed, silver blanks they needed to mint those, they are under law having to go out and buy the blanks. So you tell me what's going on if by law they have to supply these coins up to the demand, but they've had to stop production because they don't have the blanks. How does that, what does that tell you? Well, what it tells me is that there's a lot less silver than, than people are uh, being told. So related to the silver coins issue that we talked about is the paper money that you have in the bank and in your stock market account and in your IRA. And I printed a little article that says... The average life expectancy for a paper currency is 27 years. Every 30 to 40 years, the reigning monetary system fails and has to be retooled. So monetary scholar Edwin Vieira pointed out that every 30 to 40 years, the reigning reigning monetary system fails and has to be retooled. The last time around for the U.S. was in 1971, when Nixon canceled the convertibility of dollars into gold. Remarkably, the world bought into the unbacked dollar as its reserve currency, but only because that was the path of least resistance. But here we are 40 years later. Of course, this is actually 50 years later, but this article, this guy being quoted, wrote this about 10 years ago. But here we are 40 years later, and it is clear to anyone paying attention that the monetary system is irretrievably broken and will fail. What will replace it is still unclear, but I suspect that when the stuff really hits the fan and inflation rages, the government will try the approach taken by the Germans to end their hyperinflation back in the 1920s. 
coming up with the equivalent of the Renton mark, a dollar that is loosely linked to some basket of commodities and financial instruments. It won't be convertible because it would be impossible for bank tellers to exchange your dollars for a cup of oil and a coupon off of a bond and a chip of gold or whatever makes up the basket, but it might restore some semblance of confidence in the currency. That's one option. Another is that some government decides to make its currency convertible into precious metals, but that will only happen when all other less fiscally restraining systems have been loaded and failed. Simply at this point, we can't know what will replace the current monetary system or when. All we can know is that the status quo cannot and so will not survive this crisis. So it says here, the average life expectancy for a paper currency is 27 years, with the shortest lifespan being one month. Founded in 1694, the British pound sterling is the oldest fiat currency in existence. At a ripe old age of 317 years, it must be considered a highly successful paper currency. However, success is relative. The British pound was defined as 12 ounces of silver, so it's worth less than one two-hundredth of its original value. In other words, the most successful long-standing currency in existence has lost 99.5% of its value. Given the undeniable track record of currencies, it is clear that on a long enough timeline, the survival rate of all fiat currencies drops to zero. So that is very interesting. And so to add insult to injury, I've got another article called The Five-Stage Life Cycle of a Paper Currency. Gold and paper currencies have been at war for more than 3,000 years. When currencies were pegged to gold, they appeared to coexist peacefully. Nevertheless, when the peg ceased internationally, they became each other's nemesis, and thus began the battle for monetary supremacy. A study on the history of money and its relationship with inflation is essential to appreciate the role of gold as money. For paper currency, there is always a boom-bust cycle. These cycles have been repeating for centuries. According to Nick Barashev's $10,000 gold, that must be an article, it seems that countries that broke peg with gold standard and introduced paper currencies go through a five-stage cycle. Stage one is fueled by optimism and euphoria. Such period is usually short-lived as politicians and central bankers will soon give in to temptation to print more money. In stage two, restrictions would be slowly removed from the currency creation process. The idea of paying off debt is no longer important as compared to growth. As a result, growth becomes the single most important driver of the paper system. As currencies gradually lose value due to declining purchasing power, people have to work longer hours to maintain their standard of living. Well, that's, I've been noticing that since I was a kid. I used to hear about all this futuristic stuff where we'd all have it made, but it turns out everybody has to work more than they ever have for less. So I think we've definitely passed stage two. Stage three is the gambling stage where excessive liquidity makes its way into the stock market and real estate market. Growth will start to slow down and therefore more money needs to be created to stimulate growth. This means that interest rates must be maintained at artificially low levels. This is exactly where we're at right now since 08. Interest has been at zero and it still won't kickstart the economy. With interest rates kept low at the same time there's significant money printing, people will have to take risks on the stock market or real estate market just to keep up with inflation. In stage three, people also start to borrow more because of the wealth effect with the bubbles, causing them to feel like they have more money than they do in terms of purchasing power. So we're definitely probably toward the end of stage three. Stage four is the penultimate stage of the paper money cycle. Sluggish growth in Western countries force financial institutions to try to make money through other means than financing and brokerage fees. At this stage, corruption prevails, Fundamentals are ignored and wealth is concentrated in the hands of a few. Well, I think we're in that stage too. We got these 0.1 percenters that have trillions of dollars 
and everybody else is begging for their next $600 stimulus check. I think we're here. Those who fail to do so would suffer potential loss of wealth in the latter part of stage four or five. So, oh, at this stage four, at this point, individuals must look out for themselves by not trusting the government or financial advisors. Okay, stage five occurs when there is hyperinflation, which is the worst economic phase of the paper money cycle. In stage five, the currency becomes worthless. At this stage, precious metals are often reoccurring in the monetary system to be used as currency or or be used to back up the currency. Keep in mind that hyperinflation has occurred at least 56 times during the last two centuries. Then this article goes on to say there is a strong possibility that the global monetary system may collapse in the near future due to a crisis of confidence in paper money system. Individuals must realize that the current debt-based model for the monetary system is not sustainable and there will come a breaking point when the government debts become uncontrollable. When that happens, you want to keep your assets in the only real money, gold and silver. Well, that that's a one-page article that pretty much says it all. Well, I'm glad you were able to spend some time with me on Business Buzz. I've had a few other things to go over with these on the spiritual side, but we pretty much ran out of time, which is a good thing, which means that I... I had enough information to keep everything flowing for the entire hour of business buzz, so I'm happy about that. I hope you're having a nice day. I hope everything's going well for you. I hope you have at least bought a little bit of money insurance and bought a little bit of gold for your portfolio. I think it's a wise decision. You just never know. Well, you do know. When every currency in the world, when, only, when even the best currency in the world has lost 99.5% of its purchasing power, that tells you what those dollars in your bank account are worth. And then I told you earlier that if something happens to the bank, you don't even get your dollars back. That's really a, that really could be a problem. And, uh, you know, I don't want to be chicken little that says the sky's falling, but I think the sky is falling, and that's just my personal opinion. Of course, I've been thinking that for quite a while, and it keeps getting stretched out. But I do notice that the inflation really has, it really has arrived. Uh, I look around at, uh, especially at the grocery store, you can just tell uh, everything you buy is like 20, 20 or 30% higher than it was a year or so ago. That tells you that things are not as they seem, and uh, whatever Whatever inflation rate they say is happening, you could probably multiply that by about 5 to 1 to get to the real inflation. So if they say it's 3%, you can figure it's probably 15 And that's just the way things work. Well, thanks for listening to Business Buzz. I'll see you next time. This is Harold Littlejohn, CPA, hoping you have a great rest of your day. KKXX Paradise, K280GL Chico, and K283AR Chico, Yuba City, Marysville. Breaking news this hour from townhall.com. I'm Keith Peters. A Democratic voting rights bill is almost certain to go down to defeat in the Senate this evening as Republicans are expected unanimously to reject the legislation. Senate Majority Leader Chuck Schumer says the chamber faces a fundamental question today. Should the United States Senate even debate how to protect the voting rights of our citizens? There's only one correct answer. We'll see if our Republican colleagues choose it. But Senate Minority Leader Mitch McConnell says the bill will strip states of the ability to make their own voting laws. We know that it would let Democrats take a red pen to election laws in each of the 50 states, neutering popular precautions like voter ID, while legalizing shady practices like ballot harvesting across the board. It's a recipe for undermining confidence in our elections, 
for remaking our entire system of government to suit the preferences of one far end of the political spectrum. Democrats vow to continue the fight even if the bill is defeated. Presidential advisor Dr. Anthony Fauci says the Delta variant of COVID-19 is gaining more of a hold in the U.S. Similar to the situation in the U.K., the Delta variant is currently the greatest threat in the U.S. to our attempt to eliminate COVID-19. Good news, our vaccines are effective against the Delta variant. Conclusion, we have the tools, so let's use them and crush the outbreak. The variant is accounting for half of new infections in the regions that include Iowa, Kansas, Missouri, Nebraska, Colorado, Montana, North Dakota, South Dakota, Utah, and Wyoming. A good day on Wall Street as the Dow was up by 68 points. The Nasdaq rose 111. The S&P advancing 21. Oil down to 73.08 a barrel. More at townhall.com. Tell me why Relief Factor is so successful in lowering or eliminating pain. I'm often asked that question. Pete and Seth Talbot, the father and son founders of Relief Factor, tell me they believe our bodies were designed to heal. The doctors who formulated Relief Factor selected the four best ingredients, 100% drug-free ingredients that each help your body deal with inflammation. Order the three-week quick start now. Discount it to only nineteen ninety-five to see if it will work for you too. Call 800-500-8384. ReliefFactor.com. Dan owed an unbelievable amount of money to the IRS. I got behind on my taxes. It's a horrible feeling. Dan turned to Optima Tax Relief, the leading tax resolution firm who put his problems to rest. They got the job done, and life is good. Call Optima now for a free consultation. Stop worrying. Make the call now. Call 800. 